Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that really does love a good mall. Seriously, I I don't know. There's just something about going to the mall that makes me kind of giddy. And it's actually something that it's an interest and an affection that Dustin and I both share, which is great, right? So we've definitely been to some malls all over the world together. <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 158. And the theme of this week's episode is community, specifically how community is a key component of shifting away from fast fashion and moving toward a slow, circular economy. My guest this week is Carly Lake, the co-founder of trading community Lucky Sweater. We're going to talk about how her experiences with shopping and fast fashion were an integral part of the journey toward creating a space for trading clothing and building community around slow fashion. We'll also reminisce quite a bit about malls. But before we meet Carly, I want to talk about another trading community, Buy Nothing Groups. I'll start by saying that Sarah Grossman sent me some info about a growing controversy within the Buy Nothing world a few months ago but I've just been too busy to get around to talking about it until now. I needed to do a lot of reading to wrap my brain around it. So thank you, Sarah, for looping me in and kind of starting me on my research journey here. For those of you who are new to the world of Buy Nothing or have only heard me mention it here and there and on Instagram about one million times and wondered what the heck I was talking about, Buy Nothing Groups are a network of hyper-local communities for sharing and trading secondhand stuff, whether that's food you bought that you don't really like, service swaps, furniture, clothes, pet food, or even just like looking for things that you need. I actually chose our neighborhood here in Austin because I heard that it had a great Buy Nothing group. I heard the rumor that it was the best in Austin. And that said to me that it was a community that shared my values and a place where people really cared about their neighbors. That's important to me. And I see all kinds of things being swapped and shared in my group. This week alone, there were bookshelves, cleaning products, puzzles. Some things are shared on there and then shared again a few months later, like puzzles. A few weeks ago, someone asked for a can of peas for an art project. And, you know, she shared the final product last week. It was all of these really cool, tiny dioramas. I mean, what an amazing group. Today, someone asked for those big 35-pound plastic cat litter tubs. So you know, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. And she wanted to use them for planting her garden. And people were already like, hey, I have one. I have one too. And these are items that would end up in like the recycling bin. And we know that plastic recycling is partially a myth. So it's exciting to see something simple like this that doesn't really have any resale value. So no one's going to sell it. Actually find another home and more use and longevity. Our group alone is a very functional and positive space with neighbors eager to help one another. And everyone is really polite and thoughtful. I love it. The first Buy Nothing group was founded by two women, Rebecca Rockefeller and Liesl Clark in 2013. They wanted to create a space that was focused on building relationships, and it was important to them that nothing was too unvaluable to be worth a give, whether it was baby clothes, a bunch of those jars from expensive yogurt, once again, if you know, you know, half a box of cereal that you bought and didn't like, maybe some eggshells, which are great for gardening. 
this really struck a chord with people. And by mid-2022, there were thousands of groups in 60 countries with more than 6 million members just sharing things for free. The key, as if the name Buy Nothing wasn't clear enough, is that no one pays for anything. Rather, givers are gifting items, services, etc. to their neighbors. And there are a few key elements of the Buy Nothing group structure that make it different from other trade and sharing platforms out there. And I'm going to, this is maybe a spoiler, some of these elements and rules would end up being controversial down the road. First, as I mentioned, no money exchanges hands here. The stuff is all given and received for free, and no one pays to belong to these groups. And the entire process of gifting, request, receiving items is slowed down. No one sitting at home refreshing over and over again has an advantage. Rather than a first-come, first-served approach, givers are encouraged to wait a day before choosing a recipient. Next, the trading gifting is limited to your closest community your neighbors. And I actually love this approach because the intention is that by actually trading items with your direct neighbors, you will build relationships with them that you might not have had otherwise. And these relationships are particularly integral in times of natural disaster or like a global pandemic. When our electricity went out for days here in Austin, I actually made connections with people in my neighborhood via my Buy Nothing group, and people were really looking out for one another. It was incredible. It's really good to know your neighbors when things get really hard. I know it's like an obvious one, but I've lived a lot of places where I didn't know any of my neighbors. I'm sure many of you have as well. So I really like this idea, this ethos behind Buy Nothing. And really, the long-term goal was that the neighborhood relationships would become so strong that eventually the groups would become obsolete. Because rather than posting, you would just go talk to your neighbors directly. And so for this reason, one of Buy Nothing's big rules for a long time was that no group could have more than 1,000 members. If it did exceed that threshold, then it was time for the group to be split into two parts. That process is called sprouting. Once again, the idea here being that you couldn't possibly have more than 1,000 neighbors. So if you're extending beyond that, you're extending outside of your immediate community. Furthermore, keeping things hyper-local reduces the carbon footprint of the trade. Because Buy Nothing is very anti-capitalist, anti-consumerism at its core, all labor involved is on a volunteer basis. To explain how it works, I'm going to read a passage from the Wired article, The Battle for the Soul of Buy Nothing. I'm also going to share this article in the show notes, along with a bunch of other writing about Buy Nothing and what's been happening over the past few years. And you should definitely give all of it a read, but if you're only going to read one thing, read this article. Okay, so this is from the article, and it kind of explains the work structure. Rockefeller and Clark decided early on that they didn't want to codify Buy Nothing's principles into a business or a nonprofit with all of the unwieldy administration that would entail. They did, however, want to supervise how the Buy Nothing groups functioned, so they built a makeshift management structure using the tools already embedded in Facebook. On Facebook, groups have to be operated by one or more administrators, so Rockefeller and Clark decided to have local volunteers run each group. 
They disseminated information to these people through another Facebook group called the Admin Hub. They appointed regional admins to oversee the local ones, and finally a small circle of about 20 global admins to handle project-wide tasks and weigh in on big decisions. Rockefeller and Clark had the final word. Almost all of the admins were women, and their labor was entirely volunteer. As Rockefeller and Clark sank their lives into buy nothing, sometimes at the expense of their families and careers, so too did thousands of others. Local administrators said they spent seven or eight hours a week, and in some cases as many as 40, reviewing requests to join the groups, making sure their communities felt welcoming, and keeping the giving spirit active by, for example, posting messages of gratitude. And of course, I'm sure they were doing a lot of moderation. Like I've seen things go a little sideways in buy nothing groups here and there, and they have to swoop in and fix those situations. And that, my friends, is work. <laughs> it is hard work to, I don't know, break up a fight on social media, harder than you think. Over time, Rockefeller and Clark began working full-time and unpaid on Buy Nothing. Before Buy Nothing, Clark had been a documentary filmmaker. Rockefeller had been an executive director of an organization that helped people with disabilities. Neither of them were wealthy, but they were doing okay, I guess. Rockefeller herself had to eventually step down from her job and find a part-time administrative job that paid a little bit more than minimum wage. Because buy nothing was kind of eating up everything in her life. She told Wired, I'm basically living on the edge of poverty so that I can serve this thing that I helped create. She acknowledged that she'd done this by choice. Still, she added, sometimes it feels like, oh, this is absolute insanity. It makes no sense. One last thing about buy nothing that seems minor, but would become incredibly controversial eventually. It all existed on Facebook. In fact, the organization, which once again generated no income for anyone involved, really relied on the free technological infrastructure of Facebook groups for organizing and sharing information. Of course, we all know that nothing is really free on Facebook. We're paying with our personal data. And Facebook, as we all know, has been instrumental in the spread of misinformation. It never sat well with the founders that they relied on Facebook but it was also a free tool in an organization that literally had no money involved in it. So they had to roll with it. And they also had to admit that they liked the personal element of seeing someone's photo, profile, etc. It made the whole thing less transactional, less anonymous, and it helped people build relationships and trust one another. Well, things went well for a long time. Once again, Buy Nothing launched in 2013. But nothing was perfect, of course. And while many found order and comfort in all of the rules and structure of the Buy Nothing organization, others did not. Per Wired, while Rockefeller and Clark regularly received notes of gratitude, they also got messages of irritation and even hate mail that blamed them for mishaps and infighting in the local groups or accused them of heavy-handedness with all the rules. Meanwhile, Everyone was still working for free. And on one hand, some of the volunteers felt fine giving all of that time to such a great cause. People really believed in this. I mean, I believe in buy nothing. But others were like, "Eh, this is a full-time job and I actually need a full-time job that makes money, which I also understand. And Rockefeller and Clark actually dreamed of turning buy nothing into a job that paid everyone for their work. But it was hard to find a way that that would work. 
In 2018, things really started to hit the proverbial fan. First was the controversy around the Buy Nothing group in Boston's Jamaica Plain neighborhood. The group was nearing 5,000 members, far beyond the organization's sprouting threshold of 1,000. Regional admins directed the local admins to break into smaller groups. This was a highly controversial move because the neighborhood had long been segregated economically and racially. There was fear that breaking up the Buy Nothing group, based on a map, right, would just be another form of segregation, of redlining, a major step backwards. Regional admins tried to get involved, but it only worsened the situation as many members felt unheard and ignored. I'm giving you the really simplified version here, but I'll share a link to a medium piece by Jamaica Plains Buy Nothing Group member Kai Haskins. It's called That Hyperlocal Buy Nothing Group You Love is Controlled by a Wealthy White Woman in Washington State and is Reinforcing Systemic Racism and Segregation. I think that title alone says a lot of what you're going to read, but it does give every detail of what happened in the midst of all of this upheaval. Ultimately, a new non Buy Nothing Group was formed that was not affiliated with Buy Nothing. In the midst of the controversy, Buy Nothing group members across the country shared stories of experiencing racism and discrimination within their groups. Others wondered if all the rules and mandatory civility just reinforced classism and white supremacy within a community that was supposed to be about care and aid. And it was kind of the beginning of the end. Except it was also the beginning of Rockefeller and Clark's listening and learning period where they took feedback from members and figured out how to make the system better. And, and they tried really hard. Changes did come out of that. For example, rules around language, abbreviations, etc. were changed to make the community more accessible to those who had difficulty typing, reading, or were using digital readers. Tip jars were added to local groups with the hope of reimbursing admins for their free labor. Some were super stoked about this change, Others found it completely not in line with the ethos of buy nothing. Personally, and I say this as a person who works seven days a week for free on a little project called Clothes Horse, people should be paid for their labor. If you're spending 40 hours a week moderating your buy nothing group, I'm sure you deal with all kinds of unsavory behavior there. Once again, we are talking about Facebook here. That's 40 less hours that you have to to clean your house, cook meals, do your laundry, care for yourself, or even just, oh, I don't know, relax. And you know what? You're probably spending money to fill those gaps, whether it's buying takeout food because you don't have time to cook or paying someone to clean your house because you don't have time to do that or getting a lot less sleep. When you consider that paying people for their labor is not a part of the buy nothing ethos in its purest form, you see a major crack in the logic of the whole thing. Like, it's just too pure of a concept to be truly productive and sustainable for a long time. Next, groups were allowed to expand beyond the 1,000 member threshold. And the rule around only being allowed to belong to one group was removed because it was preventing unhoused or transient people from participating. And lastly, Rockefeller and Clark removed themselves from all regional and local groups, just trying to not be, I don't know, like kind of 
ruling this thing as they had been accused of doing in the past. They said officially on the Buy Nothing website, over the past seven years, we've learned a lot about how to foster and support the development of local Buy Nothing gift economy groups, and we've made several important changes to our protocols. Among the things we've learned is that local Buy Nothing groups need to be locally managed, led by local volunteers who give their time and energy and service to their real-life neighbors and community. In order to realize this, we are actively removing ourselves from each and every group, handing full responsibility and control over to the current local leadership team. They then shared all training resources under a Creative Commons style agreement, letting local groups take the wheel. And these were big changes that they hoped would be positive, but every single one of them was just as controversial as it was appreciated. There was just a major divide here. Some people loved all these changes. Others said it was super performative and not didn't mean anything. And others said, why did we change something that was working so well? It's just like one of those situations where they could not win because there are way too many opinions here. There was one thing that they really wanted to do. Leave Facebook for obvious reasons, right? This was not a platform they wanted anyone to think they were aligned with. And they also felt that Facebook sort of empowered some really bad behavior. I tend to agree. Rockefeller told Wired, even if your motivations are purely loving and welcoming and inclusive, you're basically putting yourself in the meat grinder of social media and you will be eaten up. Moving off of Facebook wasn't going to be easy. First, for one, all of that infrastructure was free and Buy Nothing didn't make money. It didn't even have one cent. And it would mean shifting millions of people away from Facebook and into an app, which would be a very difficult transition. Rockefeller and Clark wanted to develop an app that would allow anyone to join without Facebook. But of course, building apps cost money. They tried to do a crowdfunding campaign within all of the Buy Nothing groups, hoping that if everyone contributed a tiny bit of money, they would have enough to build a platform. And with millions of users, everyone would have to donate less than a dollar. Seemed pretty easy, right? But guess what? It was a major flop. Members bristled at the idea of any money being involved at all. After all, wasn't no money kind of the theme of the organization? They raised $20,000, which wasn't enough to do anything, and so they gave the money back. It didn't help that at the same time, Rockefeller and Clark were also promoting their forthcoming book, The Buy Nothing, Get Everything Plan. They wrote in the book, money isn't all that wonderful. The market economy begets isolation and money disconnects us from one another. There was definitely some expectation on their end that the book sales would help fund the app development. And I'm sure Rockefeller and Clark were hoping that they might get paid for some of their years of free labor. Buy Nothing members, meanwhile, were concerned that the founders were selling out. No one needed to worry because the book was a massive flop, possibly because it launched at the very beginning of the pandemic. What terrible timing. They weren't going to be able to fund the app with book sales. They managed to get $100,000 in loans and investment from friends and family, which they used to build an app. But $100,000, while it is a lot of money, doesn't get you a good app either. And so it was buggy and kind of crappy. They went back to the drawing board and raised another $400,000 to make it better. But no matter what, people were for the most part unwilling to make the shift from Facebook groups to the app. 
And the app was kind of a flop. On one hand, it allowed people to search outside their immediate neighborhood, which is great for a lot of people. Some loved this. Others thought it was unfair. People thought it made things competitive. On the other hand, it also felt more anonymous and impersonal because you didn't get to go see a stranger's entire life on social media with one click. Disgruntled admins left the Buy Nothing organization and created their own groups, utilizing the training and infrastructure docs from the original organization. This wasn't great. People were leaving. The app continued to be a flop with some people downloading it, but only really a small percentage of total Buy Nothing members. The app also cost a lot of money to maintain, which made it even worse that it was kind of failing. Clark was funding the $5,000 a month necessary to keep the website and app running out of her own pocket. Adoption of the app was stagnating and more and more admins were leaving the organization and starting their own groups, often while still utilizing the name Buy Nothing, or at least using all of the training docs, etc. At this point, Clark and Rockefeller decided to trademark Buy Nothing. And I would suspect that part of this, because they were out there looking for more investment for this app, probably this came at the suggestion of potential investors. I totally know how this goes. I can picture, I can hear the conversation. I'm sure they thought that this would be a good path forward. But what really happened is they trademarked Buy Nothing and Facebook deactivated all accounts using that term that were not part of the organization. And surprise, surprise, this created even more fury. These groups reappeared on Facebook with new names, gifting with integrity. That was kind of the most common one. There were some other ones out there. The most important thing is that none of them could mention buy nothing at all. Meanwhile, Clark and Rockefeller continue to try to look for ways to keep the organization running and complete that shift from Facebook to app. They pitched investor after investor who were kind of like, okay, but like, how does this app make money? And no one had a great answer. Delivery fees, membership fees, advertising. It was really hard to say how the app could make money. So no one wants to give, don't, no one wants to invest money in something that's not going to be profitable, particularly the kind of people that they were pitching to. I really like this passage from the Wired article that kind of sums up the quandary that Rockefeller and Clark were facing. In some ways, Rockefeller and Clark's loss of control made me think of women inventors who hadn't gotten credit for their products. Rosalind Franklin, the scientist who helped discover the double helix. Lizzie Maggie, the game maker who invented Monopoly. But then Rockefeller and Clark had started by nothing as a counter agent to the capitalist ethic that concentrates wealth and power in the hands of the few while, you know, ruining lives, communities and the environment. The project had been a success owing to their efforts, certainly, and also to those of the thousands of volunteers who made by nothing their own. If the movement ended up splintering into an unaccountable mess of local variations and Rockefeller and Clark didn't make a cent in the process. Maybe that was the most fitting ending possible. The overall feeling seems to be that unfortunately, all organizations require money to run. Website hosting costs money. Computers and internet access cost money. People should be paid for their labor. But perhaps the purity of the term buy nothing prevents that from happening. 
it's hard for me to say, and I, I don't have an easy answer here. Would it be great if all members just threw in $1 a year to keep the organization running? Yeah, I mean, if you have that $1, it's not a big chunk of change for you. And it could really make the difference between buy nothing, having a great app and getting off of Facebook or not. And if you don't have a dollar, then you don't have to contribute. That's okay too. Maybe someone else will contribute a dollar on your behalf. I mean, I think there has to be some solution here. I guess the main thing I have to say here is that maybe we should support the organizations and things that matter to us. And sometimes that's going to involve throwing out a couple bucks because otherwise we end up with unsustainable situations that grow and then burn out. It's wild to me that the founder of the founders of Buy Nothing have been working for free for 10 years now and paying for the expenses of running it out of their own pockets. It's just, it's just not fair. It's also so disheartening that admins are working unpaid full-time jobs because even if they're okay with it now, over time, these situations burn people out. They make you resentful of others who ask for more labor from you. And they ultimately undermine any real progress or staying power because they just aren't sustainable. Like we see that in many ways, buy nothing is crumbling. In other ways, it is thriving in this different way. I think there's not a lot of data around that, but certainly there are probably issues within these smaller groups that we don't know about because we don't belong to them. Meanwhile, my community Buy Nothing continues to thrive despite all of this. I'm sure our local admin is doing a ton of work. I've definitely seen them put out some fires here and there. There was one dust up where someone arranged for someone to come and pick something up that they had were being gifted. But when the person got there, it was gone because someone else on the page knew the address and when it took it for themselves or it was just stolen and there was a lot of drama and people thought they were scammers. There's a lot of fear of scammers in these groups, lots of speculation about being people being scammers. And the moderator, the admin always has to sweep in and like chill everyone out and remind them that there are no scammers here. If people need things, they need things. And that's just that. And I appreciate the grace with which our admin does that. I really hope that the buy nothing system doesn't fall apart because it's a very revolutionary idea here in the United States. We're not used to giving value to things beyond money, beyond transactional value. And I appreciate that I can see anything from a cat litter tub to a can of peas be real value and be sort of this glue that brings people together that it keeps them bonded in the face of other things like a huge winter blackout that we have this year. Buy Nothing is a really simple idea that has a major impact on our communities, our planet, and even us as individuals. And I can't help but wonder if it had a different name, if some of its obstacles wouldn't be quite so huge. If you have thoughts on Buy Nothing groups, your own own local Buy Nothing group, if you've worked as an admin or have any other opinions to add here, please reach out to me. I want to hear what you have to say. Um, please read all of the other articles I'm going to share in the show notes because whew, I think I've just been talking for like, I don't know, 30 minutes about this. And yet I've barely scratched the surface of all the things going on. So please go get all the deep details. 
Um, and yeah, like if you have thoughts around buy nothing, please send me an audio message, send me an email. If you have an idea for how buy nothing could be more sustainable, I want to hear about it. I think that all community related efforts like this are so essential as we move towards a slow circular economy. And I think we can all learn from how this is kind of going poorly. It's also going well in other ways, and we can learn that too. But there are lessons here for all of us about what we do next within our own communities. Let's take a moment to mention a new sponsor of Clothes Horse, North American Herb and Spice. A few weeks ago, I was sick from one of the wild viruses wreaking havoc on all of us this winter and early spring. You all know, because I told you on Instagram. And while illnesses like colds and flus tend to linger with me for a really long time, turning into a sinus infection, bronchitis, or some other secondary infection that slows me down for weeks and makes it hard to make close horse, this time I made a fast recovery. And I think North American herb and spices oregano P73 oil had a lot to do with that. I'm actually a regular user of herbal and natural remedies because I believe in the power of plants and I've got a lot of rad smart herbalists in my life. I'm very lucky. I've actually been a big believer in oregano oil for upper respiratory infections and other minor illnesses since a friend introduced me to it about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Fun fact, it was actually a vendor that I worked with at my first buying job. I just add two drops to a little bit of water and chug it first thing in the morning. It's also great when mixed with a hot ginger and cayenne tea, so awesome for a sore throat. I've also used it to treat minor skin infections and bug bites, which I get a lot of, especially here in Texas. And North American Urban Spice has the highest quality oregano oil I have ever used. Oregano P73 is the original, truly wild, organic oregano oil that is produced by old-fashioned, old-fashioned steam distillation. It is the only unprocessed, full-spectrum wild oregano oil available, and it is chemical and GMO-free. North American Urban Spice is a true American success story. Founded in a basement and told by skeptics that it could not be done, Judy K. Gray defied the odds and built a renowned and trusted brand. She believed that there had to be a better way to heal the world and that the answer lay in finding the finest ingredients especially from the wild, and formulating them into unique products. Judy was the first to recognize the unique healing powers of P73 oregano oil and create formulations that countless consumers have used over the last 30 years. If you're interested in trying oregano P73 or any of North American Herb and Spice's other products, Go check out NorthAmericanHerbAndSpice.com. They offer a wide variety of high-quality products made from ingredients sustainably sourced from around the world. I'll definitely be adding their Oregasin throat spray to my next order. And guess what? I have a special offer just for Clothes Horse listeners. Get 25% off your order with the promo code CLOTHESHORSE25. That's CLOTHESHORSE25, and I'll share that in the show notes.
All right. Are you all ready to meet Carly? We recorded this conversation very early in the morning before I had to go to work, but it was like, you know, time change. She's in Amsterdam. I had work. And honestly, it was just such a great way to get my day started. So let's jump right in. All right, Carly, welcome to Close Horse. Why don't you go ahead and tell everyone who you are? Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me. I'm so excited. Um, I'm Carly Lake. I am originally from Los Angeles, California, more specifically the San Fernando Valley, which has a big uh, (laughs) impact on my shopping and uh, consumption journey, Uh, and currently located actually in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Uh, still haven't learned Dutch, but that is a gold <laughs> mine. Um, I moved here right when the pandemic started, uh, March, 2020. Great timing. Uh, yeah, great timing came, came literally like the day Elvit. like I just had to get out. So came here, um, really loving it. Okay. More about me. Um, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of the app lucky sweater. Um, we're, uh, currently a slow fashion. We just launched our wait list. We opened it up for handmade, but currently a slow fashion trading and community space where we don't just trade items, but we connect as a community. We share advice. We express our styles, share our photos of our outfits and really come together to have a fully circular closet with our favorite curated communities. That's awesome. So I love in your introduction, you basically like set me up to ask my first question for you. (laughs) You know, one of the focuses this year on Close Horse is really starting to untangle why we shop, why we overconsume, why it's just so natural to us. Um, And, you know, a big part of that is that we were all from a tiny age raised to be big time consumers, right? Like from stickers to Barbies to everything in between. It was like sell, sell, sell to the children. So you you mentioned you grew up in the San Fernando Valley, which is like well known for its malls, right? Oh, Especially yeah. in the 80s. Uh, what was your relationship with shopping and clothing as you grew up? Yeah, I mean, shopping and it's so like, I was watching this TikTok where this person went back to their hometown mall in like New Jersey and everyone was commenting like, this gives me so much like comfort and safety yeah. and it was like there was like a like uh you know all the old like journey shoes and I was like oh my god I like already got this like feeling of like home and I'm like that's so sad like shouldn't like my grandma's like apple pie make me feel that way why does journeys <laughs> in, the, in a random mall in like Montclair New Jersey where I've never been give me that that joy and comfort but um yeah I think for me shopping was always like one of them this sounds sad like I, I you know I did a lot of activities growing up soccer and ballet but shopping was always one of the top like social pastimes for me and my friends. Um, I would, after soccer practice, we'd go to the mall food court, uh, Westfield shopping center in Sherman Oaks, California. Actually they filmed Clueless there. Yeah. So, um, shopping is like, I'm like, Oh, that's my mall. Uh, I mean, it was always just a social activity. So it wasn't just, you know, time to buy something, but it was a time to hang out with friends, go with my mom and her friends. And it just always been ingrained to me as, what are we going to do this weekend? Oh, let's go, let's go shopping. And it really took me a while to understand like that is not the most healthy for, for myself. <laughs> and, you know, we we grow up, we're, we're trained to be consumers first. And I, and I, and I really identify that and look at my, you know, childhood to teenage years and shopping was, was a huge part of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, for my family, like that was how we spent time together. Yeah. I know there were other families out there who were like doing crafts or like <laughs> hiking, but that was not my family. So 
like on Friday nights, we would always go out to dinner and go to the mall. And when I got into high school, it was it changed, you know, and I would just get dropped off at the mall to hang out with my friends. Yeah. Like, it makes me laugh that like our big night out as like ninth graders was to meet at the mall and walk around the mall for two hours. Walk, walking in laps. Like, it's yeah. Only an Apple watch. <laughs> and, like how many steps is like walking around the mall like 10 times and like seeing what cute boys we'd see. Exactly. After, like, that was what it was, right? It was, and it was such a big deal. Like you'd get like dressed up to yes. go walk around the malls. We were all being mall walkers in our youth. Uh, and oh my God. I think, you know, I was thinking about this recently when I was a child, you know, going to the mall seems so glamorous. It's, there's something disconcerting as an adult to see all these dying malls or to go to a mall that was really good when you were a kid and now, it seems like it's less good. Who knows? But they were so glamorous with like fountains and lights and music and just all of that. And I would sometimes if I was having trouble sleeping as a kid or I mean, even as a young adult, I would l- close my eyes and imagine myself walking through the mall and like all the stores I pass and like, OK, there's that and there's this. And, you know, because there is this weird comfort in this I would place. Say dark comfort. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. The smell of like the Wetzel's pretzel, yes. and, like the Cinnabon. Like, um, it's so funny you say glamour and like the, the prime of like the culture. Like I had a piano recital. I'll never forget this. I had a piano recital in the middle of the mall. That's very like, there glamorous. Was a, a piano. And then that was wasn't at a church. It wasn't at like like a, the park or the library. It was at the Westfield shop, or I don't think it was Westfield then, like Fashion Square Mall. like all even my activities were at the mall even when i tried to escape they would take me back there our like concert choir every year would go sing at the mall at christmas and it felt like i've really arrived now you know you're in front of claire's you're in front of claire's singing about jesus exactly america so weird and like i remember we would have a dance recital there every year i mean malls were really killing it off of like child-led entertainment it's kind of sad like because i was um I was listening to this daily, I mean, the downtowns of the world, like what are happening to them as we work remotely and all these, you know, store worker and and all this stuff. But it's like, as sad as it is, like, at least the mall was like a place where people would come together as much Mm -hmm. as about shopping and consumption. And while like it's public spaces, like parks and libraries and those places are where people should come together. At least like we, I don't know, I'm trying to think positively, but yeah, it's so crazy how much stuff just we like conversed and, and came together at the mall. I no, I mean, and that's what they were designed to be in their original incarnation was sort of like a mm-hmm. public square. Yeah, and they really yeah, were. Yeah. I mean, like you, there would always be people there with like tables with pamphlets of information. I remember one time the Spanish club at my high school, we had a table at the mall. I have no idea why, but my friend and I immediately <laughs> volunteered because we were like, oh my God, we're going to get to spend Saturday at the mall. And it's like, we don't even, our parents can't say no, it's for school, you know? And it's just like such so a weird, funny. what a, why did we have a table there? It makes no sense to me. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I think like that was the original intention of the mall. And like, I don't know when it, when it changed at all, but you know, a lot, there are still thriving malls, especially in Southern California. Like, I feel like Southern California, the LA area has really shown you how like malls can still be killing it every day. Um, and they have kind of adopted this more like multi-use center kind of format. Yeah. But like, in general, a lot of malls across the country are 
I mean, in decay and despair, you know, like I'm sure, I mean, the mall specifically that I have the most memories of hanging out in as a kid long ago was gutted and turned into like a weird sort of shopping center uh, with Mm -hmm. like a Walmart as the anchor store. So like, Mm -hmm, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not like what it once was. And the other mall, which was like the fancier mall where we definitely hung out in high school. I went there a couple years ago and it was the first time I'd been there since I was a teenager. And wow. it was like, I was like, I wouldn't buy anything in here. You know, like, You're like I hung out. I spent like hours of my youth here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was so, and I was like, who would hang out here? You know, and I didn't see people hanging out here, but I know, I know that people do still hang out at malls. Um, So it is, it's just so interesting for so many people I talk to how shopping, the mall, it's like, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a socialization. It's like a social outlet it's a hobby in a weird way it's an interest you know (laughs) like yeah it's like it's like what that was like my number one like yeah I ran track and did everything else but like I spent so much of my growing up at the mall and consuming (laughs) and buying stuff and like and it's just like it's ingrained in you which is crazy so how did that change as you got into adulthood like for me at least the mall part of it was just like oh I moved away to the city and malls aren't a part Mm. of that anymore but it didn't necessarily take away shopping as an activity at all like I still went shopping as an activity on the weekends yeah so it's so funny like I have like three malls that have like a big imprint on my life I have like the fashion square mall where I went like growing up it was the closest one to me in Sherman Oaks after soccer practice like you know since I was like 10 years old that's where I had my piano recital and then the Sherman Oaks Galleria where it was where we saw the movies on where our parents that was like where our parents dropped us off and we did not want to be seen like we did not want them to see us you know walking around meeting boys and then (laughs) and and then in high school it was over the hill I was a valley valley girl so Mm -hmm. over the hill was a big deal and I remember my group of friends we went to the Beverly Center and that was like oh my god and that's where it was before now westfield and sherman oaks has forever 21 it only had like a very small wet seal Mm -hmm. i I went there when i I, when i was younger i loved limited too so i had those stores but it was still a treat like to get a limited two shirt or my sixth grade graduation outfit was from wet seal like it was still like like (laughs) yes it's fast fashion but it was still a treat it wasn't like this constant consumption also limited limited two was expensive I it remember. was so it was it was the same price as like grown-up limited yeah which wasn't forever 21 pricing you know yeah. like it's kind of what killed limited actually is like they were it was too expensive too expensive the... but didn't have like a niche that... yeah yeah like express i feel like falls into that yeah too, i don't even bit. the last time i went to an express uh was at a mall back home and i was there for some other reason i can't even remember what i was picking up I was like, you know, I haven't been in an express for a long time. Like, let's let's just check in here. I can't even imagine. It was so weird. It was like, it was this weird mix of like going out clothes and workwear. And I was like, who's their customer? I'm like so confused. Yeah, for me, it was like BBs of the world, even guests. Some interesting. Yeah, I'm like, am I going to, am I like wearing like, it's like they made, sorry, I'm not like workwear, just like kind of like, in a pro like like who's wearing this <laughs> short skirt with this like blazer to work i don't know, but, I know um, no, no judgment uh, no it's judgment this, it's totally the same thing yeah oh my god when you said bb i was like it's the same it that's what express BB. is trying to be is, is bb, BB. Still around <sighs> I, I think it's like they've they've struggled here i'm gonna google mm-hmm. it right now because we have to know we BB's have to know. Still oh around? my god with the bb on the chest i mean they were that was like oh bb closed all of its stores in 2017 wow. 
Wow, it's pretty recently. Wow, but they're I see they have their online. Wow, yeah, but like who's no, no one's going? It's nostalgic. They might be able to cash in on that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So like beat Rampage. I don't know if there were Rampages. If you remember Rampage. Oh my god, I loved Rampage. Rampage was like my spot. Yeah, that was my like number one. Yeah, it yeah. felt like more sophisticated, <laughs> right? But it was. I remember I had this one skirt that I was like, this is a, this is great for work. It is a black skirt. It was like knee length, like very modest. The slit was so high on it. Like, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but well, yeah. We were, yeah, Rampage. They, they would always have good sales, but they weren't cheap either. Like, and they no. were owned by Wet Seal, I'm pretty sure. Or somehow oh, affiliated they were? with okay. Wet Seal. Yeah, but they were, I think, more expensive than Wet Seal. But like, what before Wet Seal was Wet Seal, it was Contempo Casual. And Contempo Casual wasn't, like, as expensive as, say, the Express, but it wasn't, like, Forever 21 prices. It was, like, a middle ground. Um, But then Wet Seal, I I don't, I hadn't been to a Wet Seal really for a really, really long time. And then I went to one in a mall in, like, 2010, and I was like, whoa, talk about falling from grace, Wet Seal. Yeah, that was, like, yeah, I remember, like, getting, I'm just starting to bring it back up, like, this matching set from from my sixth grade graduation and i was like i look like a movie star um (laughs) like i still remember it was like a peasanty top but it was a long skirt it was very modest but i was like this is my grandma bought it for me and i'm like this is so special and again it wasn't expensive right it's wet seal but it wasn't cheap cheap like it wasn't um like the sheet so so anyway so 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 even though of course like you know i'm not on rodeo drive but I'm I'm shopping at these stores, thankful for my parents for getting me these clothes, and it still felt special. And I wouldn't get something every single time I went. Um, and then in high school, I remember a group of my friends. We this this girl who lived over the hill, which is again very fancy when you're from. I love the valley, but you know, over the hill, it still had this mystique. I'm, I'm talking about like the Beverly Hills, Westwood, West Hollywood of LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to the Beverly Center, and that is when I was introduced to Forever 21. And it was this huge store. Also, like, now it's the same size in the old mall I was at. But, like, it was, like, it was, like, as if we were in a department store, how big it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it was everything. And I was just so overwhelming. I remember we, before parties in high school, we would, um, in this we would like get all these outfits and, like, try them all on and buy so much stuff and then go to our friend's house and just, like, have bags of clothes we would just be putting on. And Ugh. and I was like, it was getting expensive. Like I was like, I can't keep up with this. But I remember that was like our, what we would do is just go to Forever 21, buy all this stuff and just wear it to these parties. And that, at that moment, it was a lot for me. And that's when I really started to struggle with like, what am I doing? And what is this pattern Ugh. that I'm getting into? Yeah. yeah, totally. I remember when Forever 21 was coming up you know, it started at that point I was living in Portland, Oregon, and it started as like a regular size store. And gradually it took over the second floor of the mall. And then it expanded wow. into like a full wing, basically. Oh, my gosh. Um, and every Tuesday, my friend Rachel and I had off work and we would go to the mall, to the Lloyd Center. And we would like eat lunch in the food court and we'd walk all around. But the big part of the day was going to Forever 21 and buying like three outfits you know yeah. for the weekend and that's a lot for one you buy why do you need like i i know i, I think full be, outfits like i've never done that since you know like I why know. do you need to buy like I, all these pieces at once i say it now and i'm like it's crazy because it would be like get the dress and the necklace and the earrings yeah. and the socks and like i i think one of the reasons you had to keep going back is because 
you'd be out and your dress would just rip, you know? <laughs> like, I I remember wearing a Forever 21 dress at work that was actually, like, one of my favorites and had this apple print on it. It was so cute. But my friend had to staple up the side seam for me. <laughs> um, and, and, like, this was just, like, how these things would go. But I, I, there had never been in a time a time in my life before that era where I would go out and buy a full outfit, a period. Crazy. Much Same. less multiple. And it was just, like, encouraged. and unavoidable almost i was one of these girls it was like constant bags of clothes constant constant and then that was when we had the first we were starting to carry around those little like digital cameras yeah um, i was born in 90 so that's just giving some um of my age and and what where i came up and like what time things are happening but yeah so we had started up digital cameras and we go to these parties wear these outfits and then like okay, now we have to wear another outfit because we're like taking, I don't know if we had, we were using Facebook then, but we were like taking photos and showing off our outfits. And then we had to get new ones because we were documenting them. And yeah. Oh, totally. That was the era of the, like the Canon, the little tiny camera. Yes. Yeah. I always had one and uh, I would upgrade it every few years. And I was, I, I would take pictures of us at the mall. Like seriously. I mean, of course. Yeah. And, and, yeah, where were we up? I don't, I don't know. I think I would put them on my Flickr or something like that. Yeah, I was. Oh yeah, where would I guess? Oh, you know, I used. I was on Live Journal. I don't oh, know if you were on totally. Live Journal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brings me back for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, we were. It was such a strange time, and it was a time that was like unprecedented in my life. Like it's so strange how seamlessly we just shifted into that because we hadn't been doing that before, and. For me, I think like me buying a whole outfit, much less multiple outfits, is is in the rearview mirror. Basically, as soon as I stopped Same. shopping at Forever yeah. Twenty One, I couldn't do that anymore. But with you, you know, we have people doing the same thing with Shein times a million. Yeah, it feels like it's a less social activity. <sighs> That's so true. Hearing you talk about Forever Twenty One and thinking about my friend Rachel and I going to the mall and how it'd be like a whole special day for us when we like look forward to Tuesday, like it. It's funny to think about, like, it was all about, like, togetherness and shopping is a social activity. But when you're shopping online, it's not, it's not the same, right? It's like a solo activity. But then you wonder, is that why people make, like, haul videos? Because they, I mean, I know some people make haul videos because, like, it's literally how they make a living, right? But other people, I think, show off their hauls because it's as close as they're going to get to that social experience. At least, like, the, like I was saying before, at least the mall is, like, a place where we, yeah, like, come together, pia- piano recitals, Spanish class, homework, you know, like, like, now it's, like, you're in your yeah. dark room just, like, buying so much stuff, and also you don't know if it's going to fit, like, the, there's barely any measurements, you're just, like, you know, it's getting, it, yeah, it, it, and I think you get this, like, dopamine hit for, like, two seconds, but then at least at the mall you had time with your friends, and you, you, you're, you're, you're feeling less lonely, but this is just such a siloed, yeah, activity. And then it makes sense why these haul videos and yeah, it's just, oh gosh. And no one's like, at least when you go to Forever 21, you try stuff on, you can't leave us, you're not going to leave a store with like t- 10 bags of stuff, like, but. No, I know. And, and some of that stuff's not going to fit you. So you're yeah. not going to buy it in the first place oh, or you're going to put it on. It's going to be disappointing. Have you ever bought anything from Shein? You know, it's so funny when we talk to our like, um, behind the scenes our first like intro call um you were mentioning how a lot of thrift stores in the u.s are now filled with sheen um so i went to a thrift store uh a little bit outside of amsterdam because 
I think thrifting is better outside a big city because it's not like picked over and it's a little oh, always. Less, that's, yeah. my, that's my strategy. Yeah. And it's Amsterdam's like now like, you know, major city and it's, it's anyway, I went outside and I was like, and I, I was going through the racks and I saw my first Shein piece in a thrift store. Dun, dun, and I was like, I'm going to tell Amanda. Um, it was an intro. It was like a green dress. And I was like, I kind of want to just get it to try it. Um, but then I'm like, I'm never going to wear it. But I, so that was my first time actually, I feel like an alien, like touching a Shein piece. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I had that experience before we chatted, but I've met because I moved here basically almost exactly three years ago. So when I was thrifting in the U S I never really saw Shein or Boohoo, um, on the racks yet. Mm, yeah. Boohoo's another one I've been starting to see. And I, Boohoo was like one of those names that was in like the back of my mind for a long time, but nothing I'd ever shopped from because they're, you know, UK. Yeah, yeah, that's and, true. And Big when here. I was working for Nasty Gal, when we went bankrupt, Boohoo bought Nasty Gal. Obviously, everyone lost their I job. I didn't know that. It, a lot of people don't know. So then they think when they're shopping from Nasty Gal right now, they're still shopping from the <gasps> Nasty Gal that was based in LA, but they're not. And I mean, I could tell you a million stories about it, but what really happened is like, Nastiel had a fire sale and sold off as much of their inventory as they Ugh. possibly could. And then one night at midnight, the site went dark. And a few minutes later, it came back online and it looked slightly different, but just about the same. But what was weird about it is like all the clothes basically looked the same, but they were half the price. And so customers were ordering from them thinking, wow, like they, the prices are better or whatever. It's the same stuff. But, yeah. Right. But then they, uh, would get it first off it would take forever to get to them because it was shipping from the uk now and it would take a long time and when they would get it it was like the quality was even oh, worse and i'm gonna gosh. tell you like we had some nice stuff at nastiga but most of our stuff was not great quality but apparently was remarkably better than boohoo and when i heard i mean by the time nastiga went under i was like fuck this place yeah it's the worst job i've ever had Ugh. it's so toxic it makes me sick and there had been so many hopes that some other like nicer company mm -hmm. would buy uh, would buy Nasty Gal and Boohoo came in with a bid immediately. There, there was like a bidding period where, a, you know, other companies had a chance to bid and we only got one bid and it was Boohoo and I'd never heard of it. And I went onto their website and was looking at their stuff and I turned to my friend who also was like, fuck this place. I hate it so much. I can't wait till it goes out of business. Oh my gosh. Which uh, maybe some listeners have been in that, in that zone too. You know, you know how that feels. Uh, and I was like, uh, so the most expensive thing on their site is $20 and it's a dress. And in we were sanity. both like, oh, holy shit. Like this is going to be really weird for a nasty gal. And it, and it was, um, and I know Boohoo has had so many issues with forced labor. Oh yeah. yeah even yeah, in the yeah, UK yeah. and just all kinds of other stuff. And, those are those nasty gal clothes are boohoo clothes. They're made in the same factories with the same workers. I had no clue. I feel wow, wow. And are they like they probably have more direct shipping now than just like straight from their UK warehouses? But still, I like, would assume. But yeah, they probably got that under control. I, yeah, yeah. I, I just watched this TikTok video. Of this this woman was saying like even at Urban Outfitters and going places like how many things she thinks were like actually originally from like Al AliExpress or like how many things are just kind <laughs> of like I'm just like oh my god, yeah. But wow, that's. That's so upsetting. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I mean, learned something new today. Places like Boohoo and Shein, they're definitely like they own their factories or pretty close to it. Um, whereas like places like <laughs> don't like that. Sometimes they buy stuff from vendors. I mean, of course, you work there. Yeah, I work there. They buy some stuff from vendors and they buy 
other stuff through agents, through factories, right? But what that means, especially the stuff that they buy out on the market that's not designed in-house, is that it could really be from anywhere. And those, like, one thing I learned as I moved through my career is that all of these retailers have the same or rely on the same vendor base to a certain extent. Like, when I was at our bras were made in the same factory that made bras for Victoria's Secret. Yeah, it's all the or same all of our stuff. T-shirts, yeah. Yeah, all of our T-shirts were made in the same factories that were making T-shirts for every other retailer at the mall. You know, and when even Anthropology was buying from from vendors that we bought from at Nasty Gal and Mod Cloth. And so, like, it's all the <laughs> same stuff in a weird way so with, crazy. like, maybe some tweaks to it. But ultimately, like, the pr- you, you could say, like, wow, there's a big price difference between, say, Anthropology and forever 21 and i would say to you uh that's because they're just making more profit off of it because they have a name like that's yeah, really what it brand. is it's so yeah. crazy so that that's the thing i've learned as i've been around now and it kind of really turned me off shopping so when i when i am like here's my journey with shopping i feel like i have an, unvan- an unfair advantage to like cutting it out because it just happened because i was like ooh everything sucks and you know how much right? you're like take it like how much they're up selling i mean Uh, and and it's like it's not like that money is going to the people who are actually making the item exactly exactly no it's even with luxury goods it's just like how much is this even being marked up like how much is this just brand Um, oh totally i just have like no i don't know no loyalty to like like that to just about any brand or retailer because i mean there are a few brands that i still I'm like, wow, they're great and they're like really transparent and I like I will buy from them when I want something new, but that's not very often. Yeah. Um I I in general just feel like I know too much and I would never f- pay full price for anything you could find at the mall at this point. 100%. 100%. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. 
Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play, not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. 
The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So how did you, like, because you and I, you know, we both grew up in this, like, sea of shopping. How did this change for you to the point where you, like, started Lucky Sweater? Like, what was the transition along the line? Yeah, I think, like, with so much stuff, and I'm trying to, like, set boundaries and have, like, less, like, so intense breaking points where I get to that edge. But that's, I just think that's how we, I think for you, too, like, quitting that you had to get to the edge and burn out. And unfortunately, like to move to a new career and move to a new or get so passionate and become an activist. But um, so I, so I was just in this fast fashion world forever 21, you know, then the H&Ms and just so in it. And um, I remember I wanted, I also went to private, I went to public school and then I went to private school in LA and private school in LA is just imagine. Um, and I remember asking my dad, can we go to Rodeo Drive one day? Ooh. <laughs> and I think he was like, what the heck is happening? Um, and he, he, my dad's from LA and mm-hmm. he was like, I think I was like an eighth, maybe like high school or eighth grade, like in the fast fashion moment. And he's like, let's go to Melrose Avenue. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't know if that, and, and that's where uh. I, I learned. And I was so like LA for, you know, all the consumption and materialism, there's so much creativity and, and culture and diversity and I mean, Melrose is one, but there was just thrift stores and Wasteland. I don't know if you've heard of Wasteland. It, it was... Yes. Yeah. I, used, I would go there when I would go on buying trips to LA or... We always went to Wasteland to look for things to buy, to copy. Yes. yes. Oh my, I love it. Um, so it's, I think it's they're, they have San Francisco, um, where I also lived, um, in LA locations. And at that point, it was really well-priced. Like you could find a Juicy, mm-hmm. of course, I was looking for my Juicy, like a Juicy... Of course jacket for like really really well priced now it's like almost the same like it's just again like thrift and as thrift has become popular there's things that have happened too with that world but um yeah and i was just a be i was like whoa this is so cool i'm like learning and and they in melrose just had a lot of different smaller boutiques and creative voices out there and um I would take the bus actually because I couldn't draw I mean I was under 16 so I would take the bus mm-hmm. which is very rare in LA for people to take the it's just like when I was before 16 and would go over the hill to Melrose and um I just loved it it was a way to be creative I learned to like sew actually that same year I took a sewing class in the back of Joanne's fabric so I think yeah um my grandfather did not like that he thought it looked like um like like we're going back in time um I remember when he saw like where they like put us it was like behind the employee area and like the back back dungeon <laughs> of joanne's fabrics no windows but um between between that and just discovering thrifting and creativity behind it taking clothes from thrift store and, and cutting them and um making them my own i found like clothing actually can be this really creative way to express mm-hmm. myself and connect with friends and, and new friends and it really helped me step outside that fast fashion world yeah yeah i think i think that that's a transition that has been coming or happening for a lot of us for the past few years. And for many, the pandemic kind of sped up that process. I think that what keeps me up at night sometimes is like, I know that there are so many of us making this shift or like maybe are done with the shift and are like living this whole new stage of our lives. 
Yet I I read constantly about Sheehan's plans for Ugh. growth and it freaks me out. Like I I'm like, how do we get more of those people to join us? Because I get I get the I get why Sheehan's appealing. I will say I've seen lots of Sheehan at the thrift stores and the quality is mixed. Uh it's some of it is in line with what we would have been buying at Forever 21, maybe in the aughts. Okay. Um, but some of it is like really bad. Where I'm like, was more Ugh. than 30 seconds spent sewing this? It's so bad. Like you can see how corners were cut and workers were rushed, and there was probably a lot of stress and pressure. Oh, yeah. When you look at some of these garments where they're like not even trimming the threads or finishing the seam, like they're sewing half of it and moving on. Um, and I wonder, like, how we get more and more people to move away from that. Like that's, that's where my head is right now. Like where, what do I, what can I do as an activist in this space to encourage more people and not in a shamey, guilty way to leave that behind because it's not doing a service to them either. You know, it's, they're, they're also probably stapling their clothes together at work if they're buying a lot of Shein. And I've been there. So I, I know that I know what it's like to be in that space. I just don't know it in a way where it's not this big social focus thing. Like the part where you're just doing it alone at night, maybe in bed is like so foreign. It's, I struggle with it so much. I think what really like the human aspect of it really helped me like just these, you, you know, like just thinking of these garment workers and like, imagine like what their quote is, like how many of these shirts they have to make an hour. And just like the, you know, the, 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 like how unsafe these buildings are. And of course we all know Rana Plaza. Like, I think what really helped me was it was a mix. I don't know. I think people need to understand like how poor these people are treated who are making their clothes and no one's life is worth a $3 mm-hmm. shirt. Um, and I also think like, as I don't know. I feel like we have to make knitting and sewing and swapping and trading and connecting, like make that just show people how effing fun Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the more we can share that on social media with the people around us, like I still am waiting for someone to teach me how to crochet because I've been dying to do it for like three years now. You have to go in person. (laughs) That's what I've learned. I did a a two-day embroidery workshop. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, just like go find, like ask every question you can in person. And yeah, just like force them I to agree. Like, I agree. Take your hands and, and do it. Yeah, totally. I taught myself how to knit from a book, oh. but I feel like it took me 10 times as long to get it down. And I learned a lot by making mistakes. And I feel like I would like crochet to, to go more easily for me. Yeah, that's what I'm learning. <laughs> I'm like, I've watched Skillshare and I'm like, I'm just staring at another screen. Um, yeah, exactly. I know it works for a lot of people, but <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I want to see. Have you crochet? Have you made any interesting pieces? No, because well, I mean, in terms of knitting, which I I don't have a lot of spare time right now, so I'm not really knitting right now. But I don't totally have knitted so many hats and scarves as gifts. I've made like blankets and things like that. I've never made a garment because I'm not. I shocking i don't really like to wear sweaters they make me i don't know i'm just like not a sweater person it makes me hot or uncomfortable or itchy especially if it's nice yarn 
It's going to make me even more mm. itchy, it seems like. Um, I might wear a sweater vest. It's but, a yeah, lot like, of material on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of- I'd rather have like a lot of really thin layers than one big mm-hmm. cozy layer. But I know I'm in the minority <laughs> with that. Um, but for crochet, I have like a million ideas Ugh. of things I want to make. And I just like, I mean, who knows when I will find I the time for it anyway. Yeah, but it's definitely like something I've been wanting to do for so long. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we just community is where shifting people away from Shein or Target halls or whatever. They're all the Amazon clothes. Oh, the which storefront. Are also yeah, we were t- yeah, really uh. terrible quality. Like I think transitioning people away from that um, and into community and you know socialization and support and education, all that stuff is like the the real ticket forward because I think what made shopping so appealing for so long was the social aspect. And since it's kind of missing now, like, is that what we use to get people away from it? You know, I think like 100%. And that's why like community and not like, I know we have to, we're going to talk about lucky sweater, but like, it has to be. And that's why we wanted to be so centered in what we're building because like learning also like these are behaviors that we weren't taught, right? We're taught to like buy at the mall. Like, how do I trade? How do I, how do I list an item? Like what type, how do I look for items in the secondhand space? Like what are these slow fashion brands? You know, how do I hand make things? Like it's a lot of learning and you, and you really can get that from community. Um, but I wanted to give a shout out to one, I think like, you know, TikTok is where so many people are at and you see these halls, you see these, you know, sponsorships for all this fast fashion. And, um, these two influencers I follow, Sally, I forgot her last name, and like Lady Efron um, is her is their handle. And they have knitting, like it's they, they come together like every Friday and they have these like knitting circles. I forgot, and it's like they're making knitting just look so fun and cool. And it's every gender. And it's just like that looks so much more fun. And they like drink and they eat than just, you know, pressing buy now on the computer. So I think it's like, how can we just make this look so cool and so fun? versus just buying all the stuff that we don't need 100 percent. i agree i agree so okay well let's talk about lucky sweater what led you to start lucky sweater versus some other kind of app or getting into resale or something like that yeah so i, I started this blog um i just work at uber so i, I uh, my background's in tech uh, i was on the safety team there i can also go into my experience at uber as much <laughs> as we want um, um i was i was i still loved secondhand and and I hadn't been sewing and I wanted to do something in the space because I still loved it. And uh, so I started a blog really for fun, like not paid or anything like that. And I just really wanted to show how much more fun exactly like secondhand and sewing, all this stuff can be than just buying fast fashion. Um, so again, like telling stories and I, in, in, in getting the word out. And as I was talking to a lot of people about their wardrobe, I started to hear about, I mean, there was so much joy and their voice when I was talking to them about how they found these outfits and pieces in these kind of like niche hacked together community spaces, whether it was on Facebook or Instagram, sell trade, so fashion, or even subreddit. And I was like, why are they finding secondhand items in these on Facebook or Instagram when there's like Poshmarks and Depops of the world. And then at this, around the same time, I went to the sustainable, um, fashion forum in Portland, I think in 2019. Mm -hmm. And 
all of these people already knew each other and they were meeting up for dinners. And I kind of, I felt a little left out. Like, how did all these people know each other? Are they all from Portland? And then they were all part of these slow fashion. It was funny, ThreadUp was sponsoring this event, but everyone there like was using these buy, sell, trade groups and sell, trade, sell, fashion and sell, trade plus. And I was just like, whoa, these people are discovering cool brands. They're building friendship. And they're creating these communities from these spaces. And I was like, there's something magical here. And then I started to talk to a bunch, like so, I, anyone who would talk to me, the head of the Patagonia buy-sell trade group, Katie and um, Kate in Colorado, the head of the Rothy's buy-sell trade group, um, Shelly in Sacramento, um, Mariah, who started Sell Trade So Fashion. I was just talking to all of them. And they're telling me, oh, we just got blocked on Instagram. Like, this isn't made for this. We have this Trade Tuesday thread. Like, it's just not sustainable not like no pun intended like it was not sustainable and so I was like what if I just like quit my job and I had savings like try to build an app for these types of communities I see so much magic here like how can we just make it so circular mm -hmm. make it so fun inspirational and that was basically why I quit my job and, and started Lucky Sweater. I mean I love that because I think a lot of people have anxiety about swap and even resale because they're like what if I don't get a good, I don't know, a good outcome, right? Like that's yeah. the fear, right? That like I'll get something that's subpar or doesn't fit me or is disappointing or somehow I'll lose out in that situation. And I think building a community builds that trust. Exactly. And we're seeing we're seeing with trading, people are are more, they're taking um, chances on items. I've got message DMs all the time. Like I tried these tie-dye pants from this cool brand from LA. I was, I would never buy them or even secondhand, but with trade, it's like, if I don't like them, I can just bring them back to the community and find an item I want in return. So it's also giving them the, the trust and also the, to trust themselves to try things they might have never tried before. I, I love that. That makes me really excited because I do think it's like, we have to make the transition into this way of life easier and less scary yeah, and more yeah, fun exactly where fun yeah so tell me how it works like if i wanted to swap something on lucky sweater how would it go for me yes so we started as a space and very for we really built it in partnership with sell trade so fashion mariah is one mm, of our okay. um moderators right now and we have a couple other amazing people from that community helping us out and it's basically it's, there's like a vetted brand list so um, you know, small batch items, pay their workers, low environmental impact, size, size inclusive as much as possible. So that is one community where you can um, trade items. And then we just recently, our waitlist, um, we've added some people from our waitlist to a group of people who swap handmade items and extra supplies. So our goal is to you know, build these curated communities. So you find your people in your space. Soon we want to have like a vintage space, um, maybe kids clothes. So that's kind of our, our vision. So basically you, you join a community right now, probably slow fashion, which is open. Mm -hmm. um, and you basically list all the items you want from that brand list. Um, we are a bit different. Uh, I will say from other, maybe your typical Poshmark, where it's kind of we we ask we do now have you have to at least ha list one measurement that's really big for us just like as much details as you can about the item um the, of course quality we ask a lot about fabrics and materials that maybe different sites don't ask um but what we're seeing is hundreds of, of items get relisted so once you have your item in your closet our goal is like okay you listed that once but now it's gonna be in the community for 
for, you know, you, you don't have to keep in the commute. There's no like thing about you have to stay here, but we're seeing items come back and back. So you relist it, you list it once and then you can continue to cool. trade it. And relist That's it. so cool. Yeah. And you can see the shared memories behind it <sighs> with the community, which that. is really cool. I love yeah. that. Um, and then everyone adds their items during the week. You don't see these items until our swap drops are Tuesday at 12 um, p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. in my <laughs> in my world, which is a fun night activity. <laughs> um, but the goal is, and you can see everyone online, is it's like this moment where both the community comes together. And also, we don't want you to have this FOMO or like, if I miss out on this item, it's list, you know, if I don't check the app every second, I'm going to miss this right, item. Right, right. So that's the, the idea behind the, the swap drop piece of it. Too. I love that because I think so many of the resale apps out there really, really focus and reinforce FOMO. I guess they exploit FOMO is what I would say, where yeah. they're like <laughs> constantly just pushing you notifications and emails, reminding you that if you don't buy it now, it's going to be gone and then you'll never see it again. Uh, so I like that this is much more like, let's give you some other space to think about other things, right? Um, so. I know everybody's going to have this question. How does this business make money, right? Because this isn't like a volunteer job. Totally. It's like, it's like what is the finance? <laughs> what What's the financial piece here? Yes. Yes. So it's so, so, so kind of going back to your, like, how does it differ from a typical resale? So how a typical resale app, you know, all the ones we know, eBay, Poshmark, even Etsy, they make money when, at point of right. sale or point of listing. So, okay, I want Amanda to list a million things. And I get, I think that's Etsy they get. Yeah. You pay for that. Depop, whether it's the buyer or seller at the shipping or transaction you pay at that point. Um, so they want you to come every single day and push emails to you and buy, buy, buy every right, single day. Right. That's how they make yeah. money. So there's been a lot of articles. And again, I love these places because it helped me step out of fast fashion and constantly buy new, but you know, we're seeing that constant consumption is still happening mm-hmm. on these platforms because that, I mean, that's just where the business model yeah. is tied to, yeah. right? Um, I was reading this article from Fast Company by um, the journalist Elizabeth, um, I think, Sagran, and someone from the Alan MacArthur Foundation said, like, the goal of the circular economy is to decouple revenue from production. And so, like, the goal for all these companies, the Sheens, even the ThreadUps, is they want people to buy and sell more. Um, and that's how they make money. But for us, and you know, we're not perfect, of course, our goal is really around, um, how we, we plan to monetize is around membership. Mm -hmm. So whether you get more joy from seeing photos of people, you, you take part in our discussion space, you do love to trade. Um, we don't care how many items, you know, you, you want to trade and you want to put on the platform. Like we just want you to find joy and connection and, um, and just have fun in this space and then pay a monthly fee to just be part of the app. So that's our goal. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we have a tip jar. <laughs> so we're testing, you don't get any, you know, just if people want to um, support us and support the moderators, it's basically a test right now. So we're testing that, but eventually we do um, plan to have groups that are um, maybe there's free groups, uh, eventually just a small monthly fee to be part of uh, these communities is our goal. Cool. Um, what do you see as the future for Lucky Sweater? Like, what are you going to do next? And what do you want to do long-term? Yeah, so I'm really excited about Handmade um, and the me-made space because 
these, you know, making is such an amazing passion. There's endless discussions and posts. So we have a discussion section. You can post about, you can learn, beginners, experts. I'm just really excited to see so many more people get into making their own clothes and in connecting on the app for Me Made. And uh, this tomorrow is our first swap drop with our small, small, small group of early access. And we're already seeing just like, the amount of items people are adding is so exciting. And it's, it's only way, anything from like a work in progress. Someone didn't want to finish and seeing if someone else wants to finish it to I added extra yarn I had. So it's really cool to see people get so excited and what they're making and this art. So I'm so excited for, for the handmade space. Um, but yeah, we, we really want to grow the slow fashion world, educate more people about these brands, get these small batch brands to get, uh, more people interested in them, handmade, and then build more communities. Uh, vintage is a big one we're looking into. Cool. Uh, of course, getting Sheen and Forever 21 in circulation, even if the items aren't, <laughs> might not last as many times as uh, a slow fashion item. It's still important for us. So we're thinking through how can we also bring these items on the platform with still keeping curated spaces. So we're even thinking about maybe garage sale days, we call them, or a, a larger free community where you can really trade bundles or, or anything. But yeah, our goal is to really just get as many people to just really love trading and see how much more fun it can be than, than buying and selling. I think that's great. I mean, it's definitely, it, it accomplishes the same thing, but in a very different way, you know, it, gets you the clothes that you need or even like sometimes we just want something new in our lives. I get it. It's not it's not bad or wrong to just want something new, right? But it's a it's a completely different path than just going on to Shein and clicking a bunch of stuff or Zara or whatever your your uh vice of the past has been, you know? How do you see a fast fashion fitting into this? And I know that this is a this can be kind of a controversial topic because there is so much fast fashion clothing. Like you said, we're starting to see tons of Shein in the thrift stores. That's the main thing that I see right now. I see a lot of Shein. I see a lot of Zara. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of brands I've never heard of, so I don't know where they came mm -hmm. from, but they're not vintage. They're contemporary. They're definitely still made on the, you know, created via the fast fashion model. I also see some platforms saying like, I don't, we don't want fast fashion on our platform or resale platform. It's not allowed. Um, someone posted on a comment on a clothes horse post last week about how they have a consignment store and they don't allow any synthetic fabrics to be resold there, mm. which I have mixed feelings about, but obviously that's their business model and that's their choice. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, what do you think? Do you think it's worth swapping? Like, I, I guess I, I get so torn on this because I want people to wear this stuff until it can't be worn anymore because there's so yeah. much of it and because the impact of it was so great. But how do we how do we do that? I guess is my question for you. Yeah, I think for us it's twofold. It's like we wanna show that these items are like almost like not like like I don't know if humanize them is the right word, but like just like they have stories, they have memories attached to them. There's these pieces that, you know, Lily wore to her graduation, that Jane wore to their prom. Like it, it, it's, 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 we, that's what we're loving. And people are seeing that on the items in Lucky Sweater. They're talking about them in discussions. So it's like, I think as people realize that items aren't just throwaway things, I think hopefully 
in general, people will just buy less fast fashion if we keep like not just us, but everyone that narrative, you know, more worn, you know, the Warren stories account is amazing. It, uh, like, I think if that will help, I hope reduce the amount of fast fashion, just like these pieces have stories and memories mm-hmm. tied to them. Yeah. Um, so we're excited about that. But then of course, like, um, I, it's so hard because yeah, how, how many times can you circulate a sheen top without it just falling apart? But, but what people are doing in our me made community, people have asked us this, they're like, Hey, can I list a top shop jacket that I painted the back of and upcycled and like maybe had a hole in it and made new again? I'm like, hell yeah. So I'm really interested to see what people like take of these things to make new again when they do <laughs> sadly fall apart. So that's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think there's room to, to try as much and to trade these and, and maybe have these garage sale days where I have so much Zara and, and forever 21 in my closet. <laughs> like we just, maybe we bundle it. So because yeah, it's like hard, exactly. like, do I want to ship, ship a $5 shirt when shipping's $5? Um, maybe we do local meetups and that's the time we actually did local swaps during the summer and we had racks for, slow fashion items, um, even racks just to look at pieces people brought if they wanted to learn about new brand. And then we just said anyone could bring any of their, their stuff in their closet. So that's another way local, maybe bundles, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I think hopefully by telling the stories behind our clothes, people were like, I don't want to just buy throwaway things. I want to save and invest instead of buying 10 pieces of I one. And then yeah, keeping, like you said, we're, we're, we're really open to it. Um, because it is out there and there's, we can't deny that. No. And I think, you know, this, it kind of perpetuates this idea that like fast fashion is entirely Shein and Forever 21, but it's also Mm -hmm. anthropology. It's also Urban Outfitters. Uh, It's also, and other stories, you know, these other brands that people think are more premium, like, nope, they're all created using the same model and same factories. I know we struggle and I'm not like, we're struggling it and anyone listening on our platform listening to this, like we're really struggling right now with Everlane and Reformation. Uh, like like are those and that's what's hard about this like slow fashion vetted brand list. I'm very open about it. It's like we spent and we were delayed on a lot of reviews because us and the we and the moderator spend so much time like doing as much research as we can and there's so much greenwashing. And then these those two brands were just like are they it's so hard it's just it's yeah we're struggling too like what is even slow fashion versus fast fashion at the end of it the really day? is and i think that because people believe cheap equals fast fashion less cheap equals not fast fashion and like i would i i would call everlane and reformation fast fashion you know they're just yeah. more expensive but they it's all about like mass production like creating a lot newness as much stuff yeah constant newness i remember when reformation started and i think this is really important for everyone to think about take the take the retail price out of the equation here because i think people see reformation is more expensive it must not be fast fashion it was created with the idea of what if we made fast fashion that was more sustainable Really? And that was the original argument or plan or business model, whatever you want to call it. It's still fast fashion. It always has been. It's just expensive. And I personally, I haven't bought anything from Reformation in a really long time. But the few times that I did, I was so wildly disappointed with the quality and the fabric that I was like, what is the value here? Like, I, I don't, I don't see it. You know? Also, I just, the the sizing, I, I never felt like, like, more. It was like I was like you had to have like a size zero to even like look good in their clothes. I feel like 
Oh, I know. I know. I went into their store once and I'm like mid-size and I uh, went into a Reformation once and like no one would even acknowledge me in there. Have you have you ever been in a Brandy Melville? Um, yes, I have. <laughs> it perplexes me. That's another one that like flies under the radar where people go in there and buy like bags and bags of clothes. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I'm, that's um, another weird one. I'm really embarrassed, <laughs> but like they don't even have size medium, I don't think. Or when no, I they just there, have one size. I ripped, like, I will, I, sorry, I, like, definitely ripped a jumpsuit when I was there and just, like, left. Like, sorry, I just don't fit <laughs> into your clothes. Um, no, I, I, Reformation for me, I bought stuff, stuff there. And again, like, it's better than, you know, Sheehan's of the world. But I, I never liked, because their, their, their tagline was always, like, being naked is the most sustainable, we're the second. And I was always like, that is so far from the truth. And it just, it was greenwashing yeah. language since yeah. day one. And I felt that was like for consumers that just like wasn't, I didn't feel they right. They so. are definitely like innovators oh. in the space of greenwashing, I would say, because <laughs> um, they started it. And I like Reformation was really picking up crazy momentum when I was at Nasty Gal. Mm. And it was constantly like, how can we be like more like Reformation? And it's Interesting. like, I, I, I don't know. We just say our stuff is sustainable, even though it's not, and jack up <sighs> the prices. I mean, I like that's that's the reality of it. I can't speak for different generations, but I think like if I was growing up now and seeing all these brands and their conscious collections and the greenwashing, I, I don't know. Part of me would just be like, F it. I'm just going to buy a $2 shirt because I don't know what's sustainable what's not sustainable. It's like if every <laughs> brand is saying they're sustainable, I, I get why. why I hate being like Gen Z versus millennials, but I like, I, I don't blame them for being just like, I don't know. Like how, what do I, how, who do I believe? You know? I know. Like, yeah. It, Trust no one. <laughs> it's so hard. And that's yeah. why I'm like, I love the Gen Zers are just like, you know what? I'm just going to completely opt out of this consumption. I'm just going to knit my own sweater. I'm I like, love yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. It makes me so happy. I'm like, wow, you guys are all so much smarter than the millennials when it comes to this stuff. Cause we were uh-huh. like, the fast fashion generation, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Well, we have to wrap things up because I have to go to work now. Um, so I just wanted to ask you one last thing. Is like, there there one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is still caught in the, like, I need a three full outfits a week habit. How do they get away from it? I just think like, so I just, when I put on a, a Put on like, I don't know, like when you feel when you put on a new outfit, you do feel like great. It's my new outfit. But like when I put on a shirt that belong, I'm really far from my, my best friends. My, one of my best friends lives in LA. I've known her since I was one. When I put on a shirt that she, I stole from her closet or like uh, she lets me like go through her closet and I come home, like all the memories just come back. Like I've, I've, I've sweaters for my grandma. Like when I put on these, I, I put on these pants I wore on a, uh, a first date with my boyfriend, like those feelings are so much cooler and so much more mm-hmm. interesting. And just sitting in those versus like, oh, I just bought this shirt. I probably never wear again. Like those feelings are just so magical. And I really like would push people to, to just, you know, rewear and sit in those feelings and appreciate your clothes. And, um, yeah, that's what I love. And it, it, it's so cool to see on our app, we have a section where you share outfit inspiration and photos. And we, we have this chain where someone, or maybe it was on Instagram, but, oh, I wore, I, I wore that. Oh, I, I traded that like a month ago. Oh, I wore that to like dinner with my friend. <sighs> yeah. And it's so much cooler. And it's a piece of connecting you to other people in your community. And it's, 
just so much more interesting than than buying something new. I love that. I totally agree. I think like lean into the memories, be sentimental. Yes, lean into the memories. Yeah. I love Thank that. you so much, Carly. This was so fun. Thank um, you. I could have talked to you all day. So you're definitely gonna have to come back so we can talk some more. I know. Thank you for bringing me back to my mall days. It was it was a good. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm like memory you need to come back exercise. so we can just talk about malls for like three hours because I could. I know. <laughs> oh, I wish I want malls to turn into these like spaces where like it's just like giant like people are knitting and crocheting and like music hall i don't know that we got to do something cool with these these old balls i am ready for that i'm ready for that i am ready for the slow fashion revolution to come to the mall because there is something inherently special about them so let's take it back you know If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Thanks again to Carly for dropping by to reminisce about malls. I will say that I have been craving Auntie Anne's since our conversation, so I might need to get to a mall ASAP. And I'm also just grateful for Carly spending some time with us to tell us more about Lucky Sweater. You can find Lucky Sweater on Instagram as at Lucky Sweater, and you can download the app in the App Store and from Google Play. You can learn all of the other details at luckysweater.com. As I told Carly, community and collaboration are the key to making the slow fashion movement a way of life for more and more people. And it all starts with us, right? Fast fashion, I mean, it's popular for a reason. It democratized style and trends and fashion as a whole, removing the barriers of cost and accessibility, making fashion something that anyone can participate in. Okay, maybe not everyone, because fast fashion still refuses to dress a lot of bodies out there. But in general, fashion became less exclusive. At the same time, the rise of visual social media platforms like Instagram and YouTube, later followed by TikTok, they allowed everyday people who weren't models or celebrities or editors at Vogue, people who wouldn't have ordinarily had the opportunity to be style leaders or trendsetters, it gave them the chance to show off their own style and influence others with their taste and suggestions. Yes, I am talking about influencers. But I'm also talking about all of us because this idea of like, say, a new outfit for every Instagram post might have started with influencers, but it trickled down to all of us and kind of got into our psyches, encouraging us that we too should always wear something new. Fast fashion and social media 
are so dependent on one another for their revenue streams. And as I always joke, I really feel that probably every major fast fashion brand out there owes Instagram like 1,000 edible arrangements for helping them build their empires. And I wanna be clear that not the like $60 edible arrangement that comes in the mug, but like the huge one that is a couple hundred bucks and has all the chocolate covered fruit. You know of which I speak. And if you've ever had it, it's pretty good. Chocolate covered pineapple sounds gross, but it kind of hits the spot in a weird way. Anyway, even though shopping online is easier and super convenient, bringing access to any brand anywhere in the world right to your doorstep, it's also lonely. It's not the same as spending the day at the mall with your friend. There's no one to try on clothes with you. You eat lunch alone. It's not an experience. And often the purchases are kind of disappointing because they don't align with what you expect them to look like or they don't fit, or they feel weird. They're just not good. And you're doing it all alone. For years, the fashion media published article after article wondering how retailers could translate the social aspect of shopping IRL into social media. Man, so many panel conversations at every trade show I went to for like five years there were about like how to bring a social element to online shopping. In many ways, it worked, right? We got the swipe ups of influencers tagging brands in our own outfits as individuals giving basically free word of mouth advertising to these brands. Haul videos. I mean, I didn't even, like, what a strange phenomenon. If you had told me 20 years ago that there would be this day where people all over the world regularly would be just filming pictures of all the stuff they'd bought online and just showing it to people and people would be like losing their mind in with delight in the comments, I would have been like, what a weird dystopic future we're about to have. <laughs> the thing, all these things, they made shopping alone less lonely, sort of, because it's still lonely, right? And that's why I think slow fashion has a unique opportunity to sort of defeat fast fashion because it's a far less lonely experience. We're here for one another, even if it's only online. What if we harness that power of social media and used it to educate and welcome people into the community rather than sell them something? Because all of the industry's attempts at socializing, shopping online, are ultimately just selling us stuff, right? This is something I'm thinking about constantly because I want people to see real information and a better path forward sandwiched between ads for clothes and makeup on their feeds. And you can do the same just by sharing photos, showing your own attempts at sustainable lifestyle changes from slow gifting to secondhand shopping to mending to making your own sweater. Let's use social media for good. Beyond that, Let's bring slow fashion into real life. How do we get the social experience of shopping without shopping? What is the low consumption version of a whirlwind shopping montage in a movie? How do we build connections that don't involve buying stuff and in theory are far more meaningful? I want to hear from all of you about this. I want to know your ideas, so send them my way. Let's exert our influence to those around us and show them a better path forward. And let's welcome new people into this more ethical, less wasteful way of life. Let's show everyone that slow fashion, buying less, needing less is a far 
happier way of life. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe if you're feeling extra, extra, a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, of course, tell your friends. Community, community, community. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. I also wanted to just give a shout out to my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. This week, it'll be coming out on Tuesday. That'll be March 28th. We will be having part one in our series on the history of secondhand shopping from a trend perspective. Yes, secondhand shopping has had some really trendy moments in the last century. So you definitely want to give that a listen. I think it's a really great companion piece to the series we'll be starting here on Clothes Horse next week about the ethics of reselling and debunking a lot of myths out there. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye.